Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome back to episode number 39 of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. Today I'm joined by Debbie Cotton, who is a member of the InVivo clinical support team here in the UK. She has a master's in integrative psychotherapy and she's also a naturopathic doctor as well. So she has a deep belief that education is an important step towards empowerment and has worked as a naturopath, relational body psychotherapist and health lecturer for many years now. And in this episode, we're discussing all about the vaginal microbiome, specifically the role that lactobacillus species play, how the vaginal microbiome differs from other microbiomes of the body, including the gut, how imbalances and dysbiosis of different species in the vagina can be linked to conditions like endometriosis, reoccurring UTIs, thrush, infertility, and even miscarriage risk, vaginal and oral probiotics, whether they're useful or potentially harmful, how to correctly test for imbalances and why doing just gut microbiome testing may not be enough and her recommendations for supplements, nutrition and lifestyle factors to improve vaginal health overall. So whether you are struggling with some of these conditions or whether you want to prevent some of these conditions, we cover those as well. So I'm really excited. This is a very interesting subject area and there's a ton of research coming out. It seems like every week or so there's a new research paper coming out so it's a fascinating subject and in vivo and debbie are right on the cutting edge of this new research and they work to educate just the general public but also practitioners like myself through the support team and through the interpretation of this research so let's get into the podcast episode hi debbie welcome to the podcast i'm excited to chat all about the vaginal microbiome with you today well, thank you so much for having us on, Vivian. Um, it's one of my favourite topics to talk about. So Amazing. Mine too. And I'm getting more into the research. It seems like there's more things coming out every single week these days about the vaginal microbiome. And I know that uh, in vivo, you're doing a lot of research and putting a lot of information out there as well. So we'll talk a bit more about that during the conversation. But let's start off. Why don't you tell us a bit about you as a practitioner, your history? and why you got into um, this area, why you are so interested about the area for the vaginal microbiome as well. Sure. So I have been practicing naturopath for 15 years. I'm also a psychotherapist. Um, it's quite specifically a body psychotherapist that specializes really in, in trauma. And um, so for me, I've always had an interest on you know, how our body works together with the external world. So um, whether that be food, herbal medicine, but also, of course, microbes. And more and more these days, microbes are getting much more attention than they 
you know, were getting previously, mainly because of, um, you know, major advances in science and sequencing. So we can actually see what's there more, which is, which is amazing and make more kind of correlations between how kind of the microbes that are within us and on us really impact and have a role in our health and how kind of our environment at large can, can impact that as well. So Interesting. And the, the gut microbiomes had a lot of the focus for, and for good reason as well. And it does influence things like the vaginal microbiome and the oral microbiome as well. But just as everyone has a unique microbiome, in their guts and like a blueprint that's different and unique to everyone. Is that the same in the micro in the vaginal microbiome or other specific species that need to be there and ones that shouldn't be present? So the vaginal microbiome is a really interesting, what we call niche microbiome in the body. So it's because it's a, you know, it's a small area that has its own environment, you know, with, with it comes to temperature and secretions and all that sort of stuff. So there's certain microbes that really tend to like that environment. So the vaginal microbiome is a lot less diverse than the gut is. Um, namely for quite obvious reasons, you know, the gut is kind of exposed to so many foods and antigens and things that come through. Whereas the vagina normally is only kind of exposed to um, different microbes on, on things like intercourse. So, um, so the interesting thing about the vaginal microbiome, it is generally, um, you know, there's patterns that we do see in certain individuals, but of course everyone is going to be slightly different. Uh, but we can, you know, there's been some amazing research by uh, Ravel, who really kind of started, that paper was probably one of the first that really talked about the vaginal microbiome. And, um, you know, we can start to see what they call community subtypes. So different women will have a different community of bacteria that kind of live there. And we can kind of see pictures and uh, increased risk or decreased risks that come with these different community subtypes. How much does the gut microbiome influence the vaginal microbiome? Are they completely separate? Or if there's imbalances in the, in the gut, can we expect that there's imbalances elsewhere in the body? So the answer is... Yes and no. It, it, um, the interesting thing is the vaginal microbiome is its own microbiome set, um, which doesn't necessarily get a high amount of input from the gut, but yet it does get input from the gut as well, which can you know, skew it in the direction towards health or disease. So even though a lot of the vaginal microbes don't necessarily come from the gut, some do, you know, so we can see some translocate. Um, but what we do often see, yes, is that there can be issues, you know, there, there isn't often can be a cross correlation in some cases, especially when we've been taking things um, for such as antimicrobials or antibacterials, you know, antibiotics, essentially, for the gut, it can really have an impact on the vaginal microbiome as well. Mm -hmm. Even with things like comprehensive stool tests, particularly the GI map, which I know that InVivo offers, and it's one of my mm -hmm. favourite tests. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm absolutely convinced that there's a yeast overgrowth in the gut that's contributing to things like thrush in the vaginal tract. We've done the test and it's come back negative, and maybe it's a parasite or it's a overgrowth of bacteria in the intestines that's driving that instead. So is that what you mean by 
sometimes the gut can be a little bit off and then that can have a different impact on the vaginal canal yeah really and truly so some of the um you know you can, for example you can have thrush in the vagina and not necessarily thrush, candida which is the fungus that creates thrush in the gut um you know, we, we often like to be able to go, oh, it's there, it must be here. But it is remembering they are different microbiomes. But yes, if we see an imbalance in one, there is often an imbalance in the other. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the thing. To, it's a clear correlation, but it's, it's definitely there. And how would someone know if they have an imbalanced vaginal microbiome? Are there any symptoms or conditions that really point towards this? Well, absolutely. So I think what brings most women, um, you know, to really even think about that they have a microbiome in their vagina is generally symptoms that uh, either they're getting, um, you know, things like frequent urinary tract infections, um, they might be getting pain on sex, they might be getting um, itching, burning sensations, or they might be getting unpleasant discharge. And what I, you know, discharge is normal to an extent, but when it's unpleasant, it's generally has a fishy smell or it might have a, a yogurty curd like texture. And like I said, it often comes with symptoms that are, are, you know, uncomfortable. And a lot of women, um, won't really talk about this. So, you know, sometimes to really kind of bring into the light to be able to kind of discuss, you know, how, how are your microbes? You know, how, how are things in the vaginal region? So, And the same as with the gut, some people are asymptomatic. So they have all of these imbalances and they like have three parasites and they're not displaying symptoms digestively at all. Could that be the case? Could someone be not symptomatic at all and still have an imbalance in the vaginal microbiome? Absolutely. We're, you know, we're starting to see on testing that, um, you know, people, there's a community sub, subtype of um, like a bacterial colony, which really um, is one that can um, move very quickly into bacterial vaginosis. Um, but it also comes with increased risk of picking up uh, STDs, um, and also of things like, um, you know, more systemic or hormonal conditions like pelvic inflammatory disease, endometriosis, um, birth in pregnancy, so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't normally advocate treating your microbiome unless there is symptoms, but equally you might have one of those other conditions that might make you think, oh, maybe I need to assess my vaginal microbiome to see if that is contributing to kind of the larger picture. And we know a lot of the factors that can negatively impact the gut microbiome. So antibiotics, stress, mm-hmm. poor mm-hmm. diet. Are these going to be the similar things that also impact the vaginal microbiome or are there specifics? Uh, no, absolutely. So you can, yes, yes and, and more. So you, we've get the same amount, you know, poor diet, lack of sleep. Smoking is a very big one. Nicotine can really adversely affect the vaginal microbiome. Um, uh, other hormones in the body so you know your estrogen progesterone balance your thyroid balance all of these things can re- have a really big impact uh, first of all your cervical and vaginal secretions and therefore what micro what your microbiome is going to be like but then we've also got the added uh, extra of you know what's happening in that area locally so you know what sort of um 
what different types of intercourse or sexual activity is taking place, you know, uh, the use of sanitary items and sterilization, you know, what's going on there. Um, the kind of the uses of feminine hygiene, um, like sprays and douches, are, are really not good for the vaginal microbiome and can really upset it. So trying to alter the smell or uh, it can be often a uh, very, very detrimental. Um, so, and so, you know, and, and things like, of course, um, pregnancy, birth, you know, all of any trauma in the area in general, all of these things can really have an impact on the vaginal microbiome as well. Yeah, let's dive into them, some of those a little bit more. So starting sure. with the feminine hygiene products, sanitary products, mm -hmm. is, it, um, is it as simple as we need to buy organic, we need to buy unscented, we need to buy um, non-toxic products and menstrual cups and things like that? Or is it just anything that we're inserting into that area isn't really the best and that we should stick with sanitary pads instead? Look, I've, I'm always a big advocate of women of doing what feels comfortable. You know, what's going to make you feel comfortable and suit your day the best. So I only would advocate different types of sanitary products um, depending on what suits someone's lifestyle and symptoms. The major thing for me there is, yes, you know, as non-toxic as possible. So if you're going to use tampons, um, preferably organic cotton, they're not bleached. Um, we want to make sure if you are using things like moon cups or menstrual cups, sterilizing them. You know, we often kind of just, they're often just advocated to just wash underwater and pop back in. But actually, we don't know what microbes we're reintroducing if we do that. So it's always good practice maybe to have two menstrual cups on the go, one that you can quickly sterilize by, you know, boiling in hot water, just don't leave it and melt it on the side. Um, you know, and one and one that you can use. So also things like making sure that you change your, you know, every time you have a bowel movement that you change your tampon, um, you know, afterwards. So, and also, you know, hand washing and all those sort of things. So making sure that the, you know, the vaginal microbiome in a lot of cases is, is quite strong, but if you're a subtype that has a kind of a microbiome that can quickly shift into bacterial vaginosis or, you know, you want to be taking a few more precautions. What about cleanliness in general because mm -hmm. there's some people say like we need to keep that area clean and kind of um not sterile but as clean as possible and there's other people who are like you don't need to use shower gels or anything in that area because the vaginas are self-cleaning um organism so where, where do you stand with that and what does the research show yeah, the research definitely shows the vagina is self-cleaning. So we do not need to be using any douches, any washes, any soap in the area. If you do feel you need soap for some reason, you know, every now and again, make sure it's a pH balanced one. Um, and yeah, keep it as minimal as possible. But no, I would be advocating less is more. And you mentioned earlier about some cervical mucus being normal and when people are doing like the fertility awareness method they're looking out for the changes with the cervical mucus how yes. do we know the difference between normal and the fluctuations that typically happen around ovulation for example and something that's abnormal especially for the women who haven't been educated on this who have maybe been on the pill for a number of years and then they've come off and they're not sure whether it's normal or not 
what's what's the information that you can provide with that sure so you know probably the best place to start is what what is normal and normally um you know in a menstruating woman what we have is a fluctuation of mucus over kind of when estrogen builds so the more the estrogen builds towards ovulation the more mucus someone's going to get the clearer it will be um and it will also become more viscous so Generally around ovulation, you may have heard of people talk about that egg white type mucus, um, but it's clear. Yeah, it's not white as in cooked egg, it's uncooked egg, you know. And if you get it between your thumb and your finger, it should make a nice sort of um, spindle, really, Mm -hmm. is what we see around ovulation. And then that will taper down again towards your period and the mucus will become less and less. And generally a few days before your period, you may get a little bit of whiteness in your mucus. That is, that is normal. If it's, that is generally just some cells starting to slough off just before the period starts. So, but you know, it, what we're, what is abnormal generally is, um, you know, so the vaginal microbiome has a smell, has a, and for different people, it will be, you know, they'll describe it differently, whether it's earthy or pineapple or, you know, everyone's going to have a distinct smell, which will change slightly over a month. But generally, if it has a bit of a fishy smell, this is normally where we can start to kind of infer that there's bacteria there that, that we don't really want. Uh, it can also be if there's quite a strong, almost urea-like smell, almost like a strong urine-type smell, can, can also be be quite indicative Um, and often um, you know again it it depends on the bacteria but sometimes the mucus will be prolific through the whole cycle so instead of just getting that thin it won't necessarily uh, you know create that lovely um, viscous effect that we want Um, it can change in color from kind of gray through to um, green yellow yeah and in the cases of thrush it can be almost yogurt like as well so um and of course what often comes with this is is discomfort that's the other thing to note is with the kind of abnormal mucus will often be some sort of itching or pain inflammation burning that sort of um, those sort of symptoms are there any steps that women can put in place before or after sex to optimize things as well so, um, you know, what your mum and granny told you probably about always peeing after sex is not a bad idea, I think, in a lot of cases. Um, but also things like any use of sex toys, it's just remembering, you know, they need sterilization sometimes. Um, trying to avoid going from anal sex to uh, vaginal sex if you do suffer from um, symptoms you know again this is not all the time this is this information becomes much more important for people that suffer from symptoms because people that have got quite a, a healthy lactobacilli rich microbiome can sometimes push everything out quite well anyway um, so um, and also things around sex what's probably important is if there is any dryness it might be important to use a lubricant but try and get one with the right osmolarity and pH balance. Um, and, you know, and just checking in with things like um, uh, condoms and so on and so forth. You want to get them as, as kind of low 
toxicity as possible and, and kind of low irritant as possible. So it's, it's about making sure that, you know, you provide an environment for your vagina that is, you know, okay, sometimes you're going to get something that as best as possible is not introducing, um, you know, things out of it that are in our control. So. Are there any brands or recommendations for resources people can, any websites or anything they can get some of these things from? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there is a company called Yes that does uh, some lovely um, lubricants and um, post-menopause, well, menopausal um, um, vaginal creams, you know, for, for people that are having any sort of um, lubrication problems on a day-to-day. Um, and they're generally really a, a good starting point. Uh, and condom-wise... There are a few on the market. It, it, some of it might be a bit trial and error as well around, um, you know, what, what is suitable for that particular individual, you know, if they've got latex allergy or whatever it might be. So. Yeah, I'll link some products in the episode show notes as well. So if anyone's wondering, um, you can find them there. And you mentioned about the importance of a lactobacillus-rich environment. Could you explain a bit more about why this is important? Because we've heard about that in terms of probiotic supplements and sure. gut health. But what, what does it do in particular in the vaginal microbiome? And how do we improve levels of that? So what the research has been showing is that uh, I've kind of mentioned that, you know, there's different community subtypes that can live in the vagina. So they're different microbes that live in groups together. Um, and the kind of uh, lactobacilli in, in most of their, they're different species of lactobacilli, but lactobacilli in general uh, generally confer the most positive benefit to keeping a nice stable vaginal microbiome. Uh, which can kind of take a little bit of an insult and repair quite well. And there is one subtype that doesn't have lactobacilli, subtype 4, and this is generally um, a mix of other bacteria. Now, what kind of denotes the health the most, and this is a handy little thing that you guys can do at home, is actually the pH of the vagina, because a healthy vaginal microbiome will be quite acidic, yeah? So it normally has a pH of around about 4, three and a half, maybe four. And it's that acidity of the vagina that stops other pathogenic bacteria from growing. So what we can have is a lot of these lactobacilli, and especially lactobacillus uh, crispatus is kind of the, the one that's been touted with the most kind of health benefits, but the others as well, are very, very good at making lactic acid. Yeah? And lactic acid is what gives the acidity to the vagina. Um, so, and if you've got the kind of community subtype that doesn't have lactobacilli as dominant, you know, again, what confers it as being healthy is can it maintain around about four? Yeah. yeah. So, so that's what we're really looking for. And you can test the pH at home with kind of pH test strips that you can buy off Amazon. So, and this can be a really good, um, kind of first indicator sometimes if you think oh I, I don't think that discharge is right I think I might have bacterial vaginosis you know if your pH is too high as in too alkaline so it's heading you know to four and a half five six seven eight uh, it, you know this is really talking to us about actually the the community is struggling there mm -hmm. and with the the species of lactobacillus it's not just one thing so I think people just think lactobacillus is one organism 
um, but it's like multiple different um, there's multiple different strains in every single category of microbe. So with the lactobacillus, is it crispartum that you mentioned? Can Crispartus. we yeah? Can we take yep. that as a probiotic, or is there anything in particular we can do to improve the growth of that? So some of the things that you can do to improve crispartus growth, yes, taking lactobacilli. And funnily enough, unusually, it doesn't even necessarily have to be lactobacillus crispatus that you take. We're talking orally. Um, there has been other strains of rhamnosus that have shown that for some reason, on by moving through the gut, they seem to increase the lactobacilli count in the vagina. Yeah, so it's it's almost what we call syntrophy. It's that um, you know one species and the gut being in a better place is somehow influencing the vagina to grow its own microbiome in a better way. Another great way of feeding lactobacilli is polyphenols. Um, so if we make sure the diet is very, very polyphenol rich, polyphenols are um, plant chemicals that generally confer vegetables. So things that's anything that's uh, rich in kind of blues or purples or um, reds and oranges will generally be quite strong in polyphenols. And gut bacteria love these, as do vaginal bacteria, um, and they eat them, and it you know enables colonies to build. So um, the other thing that can often help as well is um, you know, some quite specific polyphenols is green, in green tea that have been shown to increase lactobacilli. And actually that can be used topically as well. It's not something I would always say, you know, you want to give vagina to your, a green tea to your vagina every day. <laughs> it's only if you've got symptoms and you're mm. trying to increase your lactobacilli count. Um, and occasionally, you know, in symptomatic cases, you can use um, probiotics topically. Yeah. But yeah. again, I would always be very careful about upsetting the microbiome of the vagina until, you know, it's needed. So this is where testing or symptoms is really important or, or both. Really. Yeah. So. You really need to know what you're doing and the same with the gut as well. You kind of go on all of these parasite cleanses and start to self-treat because you can really do some damage as well. But yeah. with the vaginal probiotics, would this be something that you like insert like a, a pessary or something or would it be something that you open the capsule and make like a paste and apply that topically on the outside of the vagina so generally what we're going for is the inside of the vagina so if we're going to insert any probiotics um and again we want to make sure clean hands first um, and as long as it is a cellulose capsule it will let down in the vagina so that means um, you know it's probably best to do it in the evening and put a menstrual pad on uh, because there might be you know some, some grittiness that comes out overnight um but at some point you know it will kind of melt the cellulose capsule and it will let go so you can do it that way or you can open the capsule or if it's a powder you mix it into a paste sometimes um people will just mix it into a bit of yogurt mainly as um because it becomes easier to uh, to apply then and you can either put it up the vaginal with the finger or um, on a tamp, like roll a tampon in it and put it up that way is, a, is another uh, possibility. But again, we only really want to be introducing lactobacilli to the area if we're sure if that's what is needed at the time. Um, and again, any antimicrobials in the vagina, we just want to be really careful about. We, they're great when they need to be used and they should be used very cautiously because 
you know, we can cause more damage if we're kind of um, putting in antimicrobials and not quite knowing what we're knocking out. So Definitely. And just a side tangent, what about vaginal steaming? I think it's Chinese medicine. They do vaginal steaming where they do like essential oils, claim to promote things like fertility and improve some of these other things. Is that just like a no-go in your opinion? It's not something I highly recommend, no. Um, you know, sometimes you essential oils can be a way of treating kind of bacterial infections or, or fungal infections. Um, I would probably prefer to use them as pessaries just because you get more, um, you know, you can have a, a better idea of the dose that's going in and the form. And I, the trouble with steaming, of course, is, um, you know, the steam itself could, could be a bit damaging if you don't get the, the height and things right. And um, so, and it might kind of increase the risk of, of um, you know, other bacterial imbalance. I think if it's used well, it probably could be great. Like a, a very old um, kind of naturopathic way of getting essential oils or herbs to the vaginal reasons was, region was a sit spa, which is essentially just using a bucket, uh, like a small bucket to sit in with the essential oils in. And this can be a good way, can, again, of administering to the area. But we just want to be really careful. Aromatherapy oils can burn. Uh, so they need to be diluted properly. Uh, and we need to, again, really have a think about the impact um, that will make to a stable community. So. Yeah. People think just because it's natural, like you can use it like every day, you can use it on your own. You don't need any you don't need to be cautious really, but they can be really powerful. That's where a lot of pharmaceutical drugs are derived from, some of these herbs and medicines. So they are quite powerful and you really need to know what you're doing. With the probiotic aspects, what about fermented mm -hmm. foods? Is that a good way to get lactobacillus increased in the gut and the vaginal canal? Or do you recommend a probiotic supplement? And if so, how do we find a good brand or good product? Sure. So um so to answer both questions yep. so the first one about food um absolutely the more fermented food that you can get in the, your diet the better but also remembering your bacteria like i said earlier love polyphenols that's something everyone can do and it's not going to have a side effect um bacteria also love fiber and they love um kind of what we call resistant starch, resistant starch, which means they're resistant to digestion. So this is things like lentils, legumes, um, uh, pasta rice. Potatoes. Yeah, exactly. Green bananas. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So all of these things can be added into your diet. It's going to be great for your diversity and your microbiome, but equally, you know, it's hopefully going to help, you know, stabilize uh, vaginally what's going on as well with lactobacilli. As for probiotic supplements, what you want to be looking for is um, it's often best if you're taking it specifically for a condition to try and find a probiotic species that's been researched for that condition. So, for example, if you've got UTIs, it's good to pick a kind of a formulation which might, you know, which has been shown to be good for kind of the vaginal microbiome and urinary tract infections. Or if it's for bacterial vaginosis, you know, we want to, we want to see strains that are good for that. Or if it's uh, for candida, we want to see strains that are good for that. Now, you know, generally, if it's just a kind of an overall insurance policy, yes, a little bit like lactobacilli of any species is going to be helpful. Um, but like I said, I think 
it's always important to kind of, if you can, the more information you have to drill down into strain specifics. Um, and this is, you know, these are things that you use over a period of time, a few months at a time to kind of recreate, uh, correct an imbalance and hopefully that your diet will uh, and lifestyle will take over from that again. And sometimes in the gut, it's recommended to deal with any overgrowths first. So take SIBO, SIBO for example, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. We're often told to reduce levels of bacteria, don't start probiotics until the overgrowth and imbalance is cleared, else it's going to make things worse. Is that the same with the vaginal microbiome? Like if there is imbalances with thrush or candida or um, just overgrowth of not great bacteria, do we need to bring those levels down first and then repopulate or is it different? No, it's, you know, again, sometimes that's easier to do just from a, you know, I'm doing A first and then B second, but actually, no, there's, you can, you can do it in any order. That's no problems when it comes to the vaginal microbiome. But of course, every person is unique in, in the way that's going to um, work for them to, to get a nice balanced microbiome. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you talk before on the subject of biofilms. Mm -hmm. And again, in the gut, we're told that biofilms are bad it's what's keeping chronic infections alive it's protecting them and shielding them against the treatment that you're doing but biofilms can actually be a good thing and can you talk about the role of biofilms in the um in the vagina oh absolutely and you know um one of the things we also do here at in vivo is is a lot of gut testing obviously and um you know there's lots of information around healthy biofilms uh, both in the gut and in the vagina, in the nose, you know, in lots of different places, you know, in our teeth, our teeth need healthy biofilm. What a biofilm is, it's um, kind of the matrix that different bacterial communities use to stick together. You know, they're trying to clump together. And normally when a biofilm is built, um, you might have like one sort of species that starts the process and other species will work into it. So it's generally a multi-species thing to have biofilms. Now, again, in the vagina, we actually need a biofilm generally by lactobacillus, which is making, again, back to the pH, making that nice lactic acid, which is keeping, you know, there'll be other bacteria in that biofilm as well, but it's preventing the overgrowth and the damage to the epithelial lining inside the vagina. Um, so, you know, a healthy biofilm is, is actually going to help you with a healthy vagina. The trouble is, is if we have, you know, if it's not lactobacilli at the base of the biofilm, if it can be some of the more bacterial vaginosis associated bacteria that makes that biofilm, then it can kind of attract more bacteria to it, which are ones that are known to be pathogenic. So it's like, it, it, you know, it will call more to it. So Sometimes we do need to help to disrupt the biofilms, but only in, um, you know, again, when we're very clear about we've got bacterial vaginosis or we've got a very resistant th um, thrush that doesn't want to, to, to move, um, then we might look at breaking biofilms, but it would be for a small amount of time just to disrupt it enough to try and get the lactobacilli to re-establish re again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what would be some of your favourite ways to do that? Obviously, we don't want people just going out there self-treating, so we're not recommending that. But yeah, sure. what are some of the things? Would it be diet or supplement-based? N-acetylcysteine is a very good biofilm disruptor, which we normally would take orally. Uh, we don't really want to use it vaginally because it can burn. But in really 
you know, it, in working with a practitioner, maybe it might be something to do in one or two cases. Um, you know, things like uh, vinegar have been utilised to help with the biofilm breaking, but also to help reduce the acidity as well. So again, encourage the growth of pathogens and encourage the growth of lactobacilli. Again, this is not something you want to be doing on a daily basis. It's just in a very, very um, short-term sort of goal-orientated way to be able to get to, you know, a next step in your plan. So it's not something I would advocate that you try and self-medicate with. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And we'll talk more about testing and how you can figure some of this out um, towards the end, end of this podcast recording. But first, I'm going to go through how the vaginal microbiome changes throughout a, a woman's life. So from puberty through having children, you mentioned that sometimes things can be altered during that stage of the life as well. And then also into menopause, postmenopause, just an overview um, of what goes on throughout a woman's life. Sure. So what's interesting about the vaginal microbiome is kind of uh, pre-puberty and menopausal looks very, very similar. In uh, pre-puberty, it's not lactobacilli dominant. It's actually quite a diverse mix of generally anaerobic bacteria, which are normally ones that we would associate with bacterial vaginosis in a menstruating woman. So that's it's this is why it's really important sometimes with microbiome is to remember not to demonize certain bacteria because it's about how is the community working together and is it healthy. Um, and that sort of that more lactobacilli dominant picture we need, we generally tend to see in menstruating females. Um, but again, different ethnic groups will might maintain um, you know that more anaerobic picture um, of bacteria. So um, uh, so the other thing we'll see fluctuation wise with bacteria is they will change over a menstrual cycle. You know, so what's happening at the beginning of your menses and what's happening at the end, different bacteria will respond to different points. First of all, you have the flush out. There's going to be a bit of a flush out because of the menses, but also there's lots of iron available. So different types of bacteria will grow. And then as you get to kind of ovulation, when there's a lot more glycogen in your um, mucus, um, you will, you, again, you'll see kind of the growth of the lactobacilli and again, you'll see, you might see it tailoring off a bit. Now, even though it can change day to day, the kind of the overall view stays pretty stable. But like I said, there'll be certain, um, certain little microbes that will pop up and down a little bit more. And generally what we're looking for at any stage, like I said, is comfort. You know, we're looking for comfort in, in these different stages of life. Um, but of course, if we have uh, imbalances, even you know, in menopause or pre-puberty, it can increase the risk of things like urinary tract infections and painful sex and so on and so forth. What about some of these other bigger, more serious conditions like infertility, miscarriage, mm -hmm. endometriosis, pelvic inflammatory disease, and maybe ovarian uterine cancers? Are there any specific mechanisms that these microbes can increase the risk of those things or be involved in those conditions that I've just mentioned? Absolutely and again uh, this is where we get kind of quite specific for different disease processes but things like pelvic inflammatory disease for example has, has uh, always been strongly linked to chlamydia um, which can 
uh, cause a lot of inflammation in when it, especially if it gets up in the uterus and in the fallopian tubes and that inflammation can cause damage and scarring and, uh, you know, set up an inflammatory pattern. Um, the other thing we're seeing certain bacteria and it's often gram negative bacteria. Now why gram negative just means it's the, uh, they have an outer cell wall. Uh, and these outer cell walls release a little part of themselves, which our immune systems um, interact with on quite a strong basis. And, you know, we need a bit of that. Our immune system actually to grow and learn needs, you know, these gram negative bacteria uh, to interact with. But certain, certain gram negative bacteria, especially in the vaginal canal, and again, if we come up to the cervix or in, in the uterus as well, um, can actually, again, um, kind of trigger low-grade inflammatory patterns. And this is where we're starting to get more links with things like pelvic inflammatory disease, but endometriosis, you know, uh, local cancers, cramping pain. And uh, in answer to your other question around pregnancy, you know, what we're showing um, is that, again, a crispatus-dominant, lactobacillus crispatus-dominant kind of vaginal microbiome and uterine microbiome seems to lend itself to increased kind of chances of falling pregnant. Um, whereas bacterial vaginosis throughout pregnancy can increase the risk of preterm birth as can certain particular bacteria. Um, and we've also, you know, what's very well known is, is strep, um, strep B, group B strep, I should say, sorry, which is, is quite well known for causing complications in pregnancy as well. So, you know, there are definitely correlations and causations and we're probably going to see more of this is, you know, this is a really newly researched area, which is really starting to explode. So, so fascinating. And yeah. some of these treatments of the probiotics and um, obviously increasing polyphenols in the diet, they're all safe during pregnancy for someone who's maybe they can't use some of the, the treatments and the herbs that you were mentioning before and the biofilm disruptors. You don't want to be doing that whilst you're pregnant, but are some no. of these probiotics that you mentioned, they're pretty safe for pregnancy, aren't they? Yeah, if, especially if used orally. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. using them orally is safe during pregnancy um, as long as there's no immunocompromised position. Um, and definitely, you know, a good diet is really not going to hurt anyone. So, mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And then the sexually transmitted infections. Mm -hmm. um, if someone is exposed, are they less likely to acquire the infection or experience symptoms from that if they have a healthy microbiome? Does that make sense? So if the, the microbiome is robust in the, in the vagina, can they not acquire some of these things? Or is it that they, um, they only take hold if the if the floor is a little bit imbalanced in the first place? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. There has been some research into showing again that a healthy um, vagina seems to, um, you know, if we look at kind of numbers, epidemiological numbers, seems to uh, get less sexually transmitted diseases. But I definitely would say always use protection because um, you're better off, you know, not getting it in the first place or being mm -hmm. exposed to it. So. Mm -hmm. And what about HPV? Is there a correlation with any, anything with the microbiome there? The HPV? Generally um, what we virus? see with, yeah, what we see with HPV um, is that it can actually disrupt the microbiome as well. So you want to be working in both in tandem really to protect you know, the, the cells, um, uh, 
to you know to, to kind of prevent any further damage yeah and could you talk a bit more about the vaginal microbiome and pregnancy and birth so mm-hmm. how that's passed on to the child in the delivery process if the child's delivered vaginally naturally um, as opposed to c-section yeah so we actually don't know much about how the vaginal microbiome is passed on there hasn't been enough Uh, research around that particular topic I would say we know a lot of what we extrapolate is from what we know about the gut and how the you know how um, different exposures will change what the infant um, receives so the first thing we know is that um, that you know like you said a cesarean versus a natural birth so cesarean birth the kind of the gut microbiome of the baby is much more likely to represent the bacteria that's in the room at the time what's on the skin of the surgeon so on and so forth whereas babies um the when the waters break uh if you actually test the waters they're very lactobacilli and bifidobacterium rich very very rich in that so in a way it gives the you know the baby that real head start of kind of you know creating a a lactobacilli bifidobacterium uh, based um microbiome so you do that you know that's the kind of the first insult the second kind of changes and how you can uh, kind of pull that back is of course on uh, breast milk. So breast milk contains human oligosaccharides, um, which are special um, carbohydrates that only we make for our babies to feed bacteria. Yeah, so they will specifically feed different species over others to try and nurture the infant's microbiome. So any exposure to colostrum and breast milk is really important for, again, kind of setting up. Um, a baby long term as well and of course is like I said if we can have quite a healthy gut microbiome we do see often quite you know it can be reflected in the vaginal microbiome but yeah I think we've got more to learn about how the vaginal microbiome actually establishes itself. Yeah and you mentioned earlier about the role of glycogen was it that it increases lactobacillus? Yeah. yeah. Does that mean a higher carbohydrate diet is ideal or have you seen no, any no no actually so it's it's more that you know our body our own epithelial cells make it so we don't actually have to do anything about that from okay. a dietary perspective yeah um and actually you know it's like anything a little bit of glycogen is great too much of it is going to be a problem um and might start feeding other bacteria as well so mm-hmm. there are other bacteria that can go oh that's a good meal for me too so and obviously everyone's different with nutrition and food sensitivity and all of that but is there a general Mm -hmm. overview of an optimal diet for someone struggling with reoccurring infections thrush bacterial vaginosis utis are there foods that they should be limited in the diet and you mentioned about increasing polyphenols that's a really um, good question actually no i think moving more towards a whole food diet in general one that is really diverse you know if you start thinking about it's not just the nutrients what you want from the food it's you want to feed your microbiome too so it's just kind of thinking during the day have i fed my microbiome today have i given them something that they would like and am i diversifying it because one thing we do know for sure um you know even though 
things are changing all the time in the microbial world, the one thing we know is diversity in the gut equals health. So if you're feeding your microbiome a nice diverse diet, so try not to kind of uh, limit yourself to kind of only one macromolecule, um, you know, for your health in general, long, mm -hmm. in a long-term point of view. Um, and that's also going to have an impact kind of, you know, on your other microbiomes, your oral, your vaginal, your urinary tract microbiome, so on and so forth. And the lifestyle factors we've touched on, the hygiene aspects of the vagina. Is there any other lifestyle things that we've missed? Like, I'm, I'm not thinking that the, there's going to be studies on sleep and exercise with the vaginal microbiome, but is there anything that we've not covered? You know, stress does have an impact on the vaginal, on all microbi microbiomes. Um, and vice versa, actually, which is really interesting. Like, again, the gut microbiome can really impact how your HPA axis or hypothalamus pituitary adrenal, I should say, axis is working. So how your response to stress is. Um, but yes, the amount of cortisol around that might, again, um, make a difference to how much sugar is available to different cells, which is therefore going to change microbiomes as mm -hmm. well. So um, one thing dietary wise I haven't mentioned is we don't want a no sugar diet. Um, you know, carbohydrates are still important, but we don't want a high refined sugar diet that really does play havoc with microbiomes. Definitely. So. On to testing now. So you mentioned yeah. earlier about getting some pH strips. Was that a urine-based test or is that like a swab? No, that's a swab. So, um, so, um, so if you're looking, if you're trying to look for the pH of the vagina, what you need is um, kind of, you know, like litmus paper, mm -hmm. which you can use for testing soil and all different types of things. Um, you just want to make sure it does go down to about three and a half, four, so that you can ease it quite, read it quite um, easily um, and going to test is the vaginal fluid so you need to to be able to get it up there to be mm -hmm. able to measure it um, part of the test that we actually do here at vivo one of you actually do you get a kind of a special ph device to do then and there and record the number immediately uh, as well as we test you know because both things are important but like i said as a home self test if you can get some ph strips off amazon as long as they go down low enough that's a can be a good way of starting to tell have I got bacterial vaginosis have I got an imbalance there um because actually one thing I haven't mentioned Vivian is you know a very big problem can be people treating thrush which they think with antifungals whereas actually it's another story it's another picture and they're not actually ever getting on top of the infection uh and of course the more treatments they have the worse it becomes because the microbiome becomes progressively damaged so you know, knowledge is power in, in, um, and can really help when it, um, you know, especially if there's symptoms. Mm -hmm. It's the you same know, no when people take in like a antibiotic for a cold and flu virus. They're actually making the issue worse in the long run because they're depleting the good bacteria, which is their immune system. So you need to identify what species it is so that you can get the correct treatment protocol for that. Yeah. And, you know, no woman should have to be in pain in their vaginal region. It's not normal. It's not okay. You know, mm -hmm. so, and I think it's not talked about enough or I don't think we do enough to try and make women more comfortable. That's so. right. And I've heard people say before, if you had pain anywhere else in your body, if you had pain all day long in your arm or your hand, you'd be doing something about it. You'd be going to the doctors and trying to get some answers. But just because it's menstrual cramps or 
pain in the vagina people put up with it and think it's normal but it's actually a message from your body and a sign that you should be doing something so yeah, yeah. I love that you made that point and the in vivo female ecologics test can you tell us more about that because I've just become familiar with it in the past couple of weeks as you've released it recently and I've been doing it with some clients and it's so insightful I actually had a client recently who has been to the doctor repeatedly for decades with symptoms of what sounds like thrush with the cottage cheese like discharge and she's been told it's all in her head which is oh that's awful absolutely unbelievable to think of even when they're seeing it right there in front of them they're telling her it's all in her head and then all the tests have come back negative so what could be going on there when someone's clearly got an issue but the tests aren't showing anything from conventional lab testing so i guess one thing to remember with a lot of conventional swabbing is often uh, it needs to be cultured. So it needs, the bacteria needs to be grown on a, in a Petri dish to be able to, to see what's there. A lot of bacteria don't like to grow in an oxygen-rich environment, especially lactobacilli, which is your good guys. So um, with the kind of the advent of new technology, uh, and a lot of STD testing luckily has moved this way, but not a lot of normal swabbing, unfortunately. Um, is that we can now kind of measure the DNA of bacteria. So you can see if they're present or not via their DNA. It's called PCR, polymerase chain reaction. Um, so it's a different type of testing. Okay, so we, we kind of, we have to create primers and we're looking specifically for the, the presence of those bacteria or fungi or viruses there in whatever you know, fluid that we have. Uh, and this is, you know, what's enabled kind of the vaginal microbiome research to explode and to come on like this, because actually it was very, very hard to culture from. Um, so, and you know what, so what we're looking for really in the ecologics test is we're looking for, you know, first of all, um, a number of different lactobacilli species that have been associated with a state of health. Um, you know, because some are better pH producers than others. So we're trying to see if you've got the, the ones that are more protective. Uh, we're then looking at all the bacterial vaginosis associated bacteria to look at, again, how high they may be. We're also looking for what we call the pathobionts or um, the bacteria that only become pathogenic if they get a chance. Um, and some of those can actually come from, they're the ones that are can clearly translocate from the bowel. So, um, so we're looking for those as well. Um, and then we're looking for candida, but we're looking for different species because of course you might not be coming up for, you know, candida albicans often gets the blame, but actually sometimes it can be different species of candida. Um, and then as an add-on, sexually transmitted infections, we are not looking for all of them. We are generally looking for the ones that are more indicated in kind of systemic health and disease or infertility, things like uroplasma and uh, chlamydia and um, so on and so forth. So that's kind of what we're trying to build up is, you know, what's your normal microbiome? And then if we've got symptoms as well in the pH, we're trying to put that all together to see, okay, what, what kind of is causing an issue and how can I move this microbiome back into a state of health? Mm. And with a client like yours, what we'd be looking for probably is the different types of candida species first. Um, but of course, you know, if someone's had frequent antibiotics, long-standing antibiotics, 
actually, you know, we talk about lactobacillus being the good guys, but in some cases, an overgrowth of lactobacilli with none of the other bacteria can actually cause symptoms very similar to thrush. You can't pick that up unless you, you test for it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, and this is where it can, you know, it can kind of be life-changing if something's been a you know a chronic infection for a long period of time you know it may not fix itself overnight you might need kind of you know three to six months of really trying to change the microbiome and also you know looking at hormones and everything else in the background and gut health but you know hopefully we can start to move in a direction of health again mm -hmm. so. yeah we ordered that test immediately after the first session she was like i need that test she actually started crying because i told her about the test and how comprehensive it is and how amazing the results are like the, the the form that you get afterwards the guide the results um i'll include a sample report in the show notes as well for people to look at um but we're still waiting for the results but i'm sure that there's going to be some insightful information on there as well and she was just so overwhelmed because she was starting to believe like is it all in my head like could this be something that i have to live with forever and this was obviously affecting her confidence and her relationship so yeah i'm yeah. excited to see what what the results will be and put her on a protocol for that as well because it's the same with the stool test people say i've done all the tests i've done endoscopies i've done colonoscopies and um hitch pylori tests and everything's negative but when you compare that test to like a gi map and a dna based test the information that you get is completely different and it's not going to be available on the NHS some of these tests as well you do need to I'm right you do need to order it the female ecologics through a practitioner is that correct that's, yeah that's that's right it's mm -hmm. it's it's through a practitioner just because it's one of those tests that does need you know one of the things about microbial testing is in general it needs a good amount of interpretation because um, not all bacteria are bad. So, you know, what we're trying to kind of encourage is looking at the microbiome. How can we encourage a healthy microbiome? And occasionally, yes, we might have to kill a few pathogens off, but um, we, we want to make sure it sits within that whole program. And, that, and that's why we encourage people to use, to access these tests through clinicians. Mm -hmm. And I offer this with, in my practice and with clients. And I believe if you contact in vivo clinical, they can set you up with a practitioner who orders these tests and has an account with you as well so if people want to find answers they've actually they've absolutely got that option as well absolutely. and the test yeah it's such an amazing test and i'm excited to see the research continuing to grow over the next couple of months and years and i'm sure you are as well um, oh, absolutely yeah. <laughs> and you know i'm sure our tests will flex and change with that research yeah. too that's what mm -hmm. we're you know, we're really looking forward to is being part of this community that really um, helps to empower women a bit more about their mm -hmm. health, their vaginal health. Love so. it. Yeah, perfect. So let's finish up with just a few more questions. So sure. on the, the subject of the vaginal microbiome or anything else that you've been researching lately, is there anything interesting or um, something that you want to share with us about anything regarding to health, any cool new research? Oh, goodness, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I should have wow. given you a heads up with this so you could have come <laughs> yeah. through to think about it. The first thing um, that pops to mind. Look, I'm continually blown away by polyphenols. I know I've mm. mentioned them about five times in mm -hmm. this call, but I am, you know, every paper I seem to pick up at the moment is another herb or another, you know, normal day-to-day -day food that we eat, cocoa, green tea, you know, all of these wonderful normal 
things that can really, really have a strong impact on us. And, um, and also actually some other really cool research that I've come across lately um, was actually looking at the damage of um, diets that either rely too heavily on fat or uh, cut out too many things out of the diet, how that can really play a role in the microbiome, which for long-term health can be a really, you know, short-term health, it might, you might feel better, but long-term health is not necessarily a good idea. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I guess that's some of the things. Interesting. Sw- swirling through my head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've got a lot going on in that head. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Quite it's often. Never ending. There's always something um something interesting coming out every single week it feels like is yes. the one herb nutrient supplement food specific to let's say vaginal health or mm-hmm. your personal favorite things that you couldn't live without or you'd recommend to the average woman just to support even if she doesn't have a diagnosed condition would it be something like dark chocolate or lactobacillus probiotic is there any specifics you know, one thing, can I say two things? That's cheating. Um, no, so <laughs> two things. One would be, um, yes, making sure that you've, you've got fermented foods in your diet and, you know, diversity, food diversity, which I've spoken about. My other thing would be vitamin A. And I think this is such an underplayed nutrient in a lot of people, both from a you know a immunity point of view, from a, how it looks after epithelial linings, from from mouth to gut to vagina and how it plays a really strong role in fertility. And we've all become so scared of vitamin A because of course, if you take vitamin A as a supplement in really high doses, it can cause, it lives, it will get, uh, it gets stored in the liver. So too much can be an issue. And especially in pregnancy, too much can be an issue. Uh, but because of that, everyone's become really scared and not taking enough at all. You know, uh, we don't eat organ meat rich in vitamin a Um, we often do get beta carotene which is from fruit and vegetables but not everyone can convert it so i would say my favorite thing kind of on on the radar for a lot of women at the moment and also women considering pregnancy is is kind of how's your vitamin a status Mm -hmm. um you know how much are you eating in your diet have you got a source of it do we need to bump you up before you start um you know preconception care so love that and people listening to this podcast know that i'm a huge organ meat fan and liver it's one of my favorite foods so they already know like i'm going to tell them to eat liver but this is your opportunity this is another reason to support your immune system to support your mucous membranes and if your fertility as well whether you want to get pregnant now or in the future not at all we still want to be healthy and fertile and have balanced hormones this is what this podcast is all about so Love that you've wrapped the episode up on that note. Could you just finish off by telling us a bit more about where we can find you online or more about where we can find the test if people want to go ahead with that? Sure, absolutely. So um, if you go to the website invivohealthcare.com, you will see all of our uh, kind of our, our offering of tests and supplements. So um, I'm also lucky enough to be a part of the um, product development team here so a lot of the supplements we develop are kind of with the microbiome in mind and also you know to to try and support a lot of the things that we do Um, and so you'll be able to see all the testing and and whatnot that we offer there and uh, and you can find me there essentially or you can find me on my own website as well debbiecotton.com yeah and again I'll link all of those in the show notes for everyone to refer to 
So thank you so much, Debbie. This has been a great episode. I've learned a lot and I appreciate you spending your time with us today. Oh, my absolute pleasure. I will always be happy to talk about vaginas. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at Viva Natural Health for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.